I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. We expect our stories in some ways to have kind of like a deep ending. That's not how things work. It's a mix of adventure and mystery and suspense. I feel like a scam artist. I probably shouldn't have written this book. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Casey Plett grew up in towns that both shaped and nurtured her, but because they were transphobic, also discouraged parts of her. Casey has centered the experience of trans women in her award-winning novels and short stories. But does that make her a member of that community? And what exactly is that community, or any community for that matter? Is it shared interests? Do we choose it? Or is it an accident of geography or birth? The slippery concept of community bonds we need as humans but that can also confine us is the subject of Casey's book of essays. It's called On Community, and Ryan B. Patrick talks with her about it in our second half. Matea Roach joined a select group, or community we can say, when they became a Jeopardy winner. And they joined another group of winners last year when the book they championed, Ducks, One Canada Reads. Matea joins me in a half an hour to recommend some of their current favorite reads. But first, what happens when a nail salon builds up a clientele, its own kind of community, and the glossy forces of gentrification threaten to tear that down? I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Sunshine Nails will surprise you right from its shiny, colorful cover. It's about a nail salon and the colorful family that owns it. They are the Tran family, headed up by Debbie and Phil, who are refugees from Vietnam. Back in the 90s, they opened a nail salon in a low-rent neighborhood of Toronto. And Sunshine Nails is definitely a no-frills operation. The sign is crooked, bulbs are burnt out, and there's no Wi-Fi. But for almost two decades, Debbie and Phil have poured themselves into their work delivering good nail art and making enough to raise their kids and get by. Then everything goes wrong. Just as their landlord doubles their rent, an upscale American franchise moves in across the street. The trans can't make ends meet, but Sunshine Nails is their life. They can't afford to lose it. The question is how far and at what cost will they go to save it? Mai Nguyen is the author of Sunshine Nails. It's her debut novel, and she joins me today in Toronto where she lives. Hello and welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Me too. Thank you for this book. It's such a great novel. You gave us this wonderful, zany, tran family, uh, a nonstop twisting plot, a real sense of the inner life of the nail salon, including the people who are working there. And I guess my first question to you comes from the last page of the book. At the end of your acknowledgments, you say there would be no sunshine nails without my parents. Tell me, how are they responsible for your book? It's true. I wouldn't have written this book without my parents. Uh, since I was eight, my parents have run a nail salon in Halifax uh, for a very long time. It was where I hung out after school. I did my homework there. I brought my friends there to hang out. And when I got older, they hired me to do manicures and pedicures. And it was where I spent a lot of my childhood. And as I got older, I realized like, my parents weren't the only ones that operated a nail salon. There were so many other Vietnamese immigrants in Halifax that also opened up nail salons. It was uh, a refuge for them. It, it was their financial salvation. And as I got older, I learned that thousands of Vietnamese immigrants in Canada and the U.S. opened up nail salons all, all over. And it was uh, their way to build a livelihood. And seeing my parents thrive just from operating a nail salon, it, it really inspired me to write a book about showing the behind the scenes of what goes on in a nail salon. My, as you're, as you're talking about your experience in your parents' salon, I couldn't help but look at your nails as well. Just a, a natural instinct. <laughs> They are unadorned. Oh, gosh, are, don't look at no, them. You don't want me to look at them. 
You've left that part of your life behind? I love to adorn my nails every now and then, but, you know, it's a lot of upkeep. I'm shocked that my parents get these customers that come in regularly every week, every two weeks. Um, But kudos to them. I'm a simple gal. I keep my nails really, really plain, unfortunately. This is not a good advertisement for your parents' salon right now. It's not. I feel like a scam artist. I probably shouldn't have written this book. Actually, that's definitely not true. And and, and because you have a lot of experience writing about this world of nail salons, it's not the first time you've written about them. It's the first time in a book, but you have many articles, including one in The Globe from this summer that you wrote. Uh, You've written from the perspective of a journalist. What is it about this subject that continues to inspire you to to write about it? I always think it's fascinating when a group of people pick a certain vocation and thousands of them picked that vocation. I always grew up wondering why so many Vietnamese people ran nail salons. Like, why not go into any other industry? Why why this really particular niche industry? And so as a journalist, I sort of dug into the reasons as to why, not thinking I would actually find an actual reason. But it turns out uh, in the 1970s and 80s when the first a wave of Vietnamese boat refugees came over to the United States. Uh, they were greeted by an actress named Tippi Hedren. You might be familiar with her uh, from Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. And she introduced about 20 Vietnamese female refugees and showed them the art of the manicure. She wanted to teach them some skills that would allow them to thrive and build a livelihood in America. And these 20 women did so well. The nail industry was thriving. And so they told their friends about the nail industry. Their friends told their friends. And that's really how my parents got into the industry. They saw their friends succeed and build such lucrative lives from the nail salon industry. And so that's what propelled them to open up their own salon. In this country, in Canada, would you call it a a, a phenomenon? And how, how much of a phenomenon is it, this Vietnamese owned nail salon? I would say it's definitely a phenomenon. I think if you walk down any street and walked into a nail salon, you'll most likely find a Vietnamese owner behind the counter. Okay. I, And it's interesting because these things are never um, coincidental. You know, the same questions I've asked about a lot of Filipino nurses and, you know, mm-hmm. Punjabis in the trucking industry and stuff. There's always reason. So it's uh, I love this idea of getting to the heart of why and how that happens. How did you figure out that there's a connection between the thousands of Vietnamese-owned nail salons in North America and this Tippi Hendrix? How did you make that connection? Where where did you find that information? You know, I was working on an article for Warren Fashion Journal. It's now a defunct magazine. But um, I came across this piece of history in a book called Nails, and there was this tiny little paragraph about the Tippi Hedren connection. Mm. And I was like, what? Is this for real? Is this actually true? And so I did a bit more research and it turns out it is true. I mean, if you look at any interviews with Tippi Hedren, she will call herself the godmother of nails. Um, She is so proud to see the Vietnamese community embrace nails and turned it into an $8 billion industry. Mm. And yeah, she, she will she will take credit for that, for teaching the first uh, Vietnamese immigrants the art of the nail salon. It's interesting that that book is called Nails, but she only got like a sort of a passing mention. Yes, and yeah. And she's the godmother. Well, mm. it was a very small section focused on Vietnamese refugees embracing the nail industry. It was more a, a history book about the culture of nails dating back to, you know, uh, Cleopatra. So uh, as you mentioned Cleopatra, we'll stick with famous people for, for, for one more question here. Debbie and Phil, the, the Tran family, they chose their American names when they immigrated to Canada. Where did you get that idea to name them after 80s pop stars Debbie Harry and Phil Collins? Oh, my gosh. I think if you ask any Canadian immigrant, a lot of them have probably switched their names. Um, my parents have picked names that are easier for their customers and friends to pronounce. It's just a way to assimilate into the community and make their lives and the people around them a little bit easier. I thought it was funny to have Debbie and Phil choose the names of Debbie Harry and Phil Collins because how else do you know if a name is popular? If a pop artist has named that, then you know it's a good <laughs> English name to go after. So uh, my brother, Michael, is named after Michael Jackson. I mean, what what better name is there than Michael, right? So so that they pick names based off what they see in pop culture. That's great. You would think it's biblical, Michael, right? But no, <laughs> right. Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Um, more than 100,000 Vietnamese people immigrated to Canada in the years following the Vietnam War. People like Debbie and Phil... 
What did you want to say about their experiences fleeing their homes to make a new life here in Canada? You know, there's a lot of books out there centered around characters um, in the Vietnam War. And I think I wanted to continue that story. I wanted to show that there are still there's still a story to be told once they land in North America. The story doesn't end because they fled the war and they found a home here. There's still a struggle. There's still um, issues that they have to go through. And yes, Debbie and Phil aren't fighting war and famine anymore. Their struggles are a little bit more contemporary. But I think a lot of immigrants still relate to that. There's still a lot that they have to explore once they land in in Canada. Um, Debbie and Phil are struggling with connecting with their with their children. Um, who are raised in a different generation in a different country that they're not familiar with. They're struggling with keeping up with rent. They're struggling with keeping their business alive. And that's all things that um, still carry on despite the fact that they have left the trauma of the war behind. And so I wanted to continue that story. It's interesting. You know, you you talk about these struggles. And, and I want to ask you a question about this. It, it's really about your writing style. So the Tran family has all these various uh, problems that you mention. In addition to that, there's this nasty boss moving in across the street. Um, their daughter has uh, moved after eight years in L.A., lost her job, lost her uh, her fiancé. Um, their son is going through this period of sort of disillusionment at work. A lot of stress happening. A lot of stress. <laughs> Something that could break somebody, even one of those things. And yet somehow you're writing never you never feel the heaviness it has a real lighthearted touch how do you how do you achieve that you know i grew up in a family that always laughed we always look for the joy in things despite how dark it could be and i think that might be an element of my parents coming from a war torn country they never looked back they always looked forward they always saw the light in the dark you know they always saw the lotus in the mud that kind of thing they were always very optimistic. I mean, sometimes unnervingly so, <laughs> but they were always very optimistic. And I think that's how my writing style emerged. I wanted to showcase the stress of the Tran family, but I also wanted to showcase their humor and um, how they see the, the lightheartedness and things. And I think sometimes it's hard to always read characters struggling. It's nice to see them laugh and, and um, take a, have a break, you know. And yeah. so I wanted to have a little bit of a balance there. Sure. And also on the note of a writing style, the novel is told from five different perspectives. Uh, the trans, their children, and their niece. Why did you choose to tell the story that way? You know, it wasn't it wasn't my intention originally. I originally wanted to write it in one point of view, in the point of view of Jessica, who is the daughter. But as I started writing this story, when you write a family story, you need to include the perspectives of the parents, of of the brother, of the niece that has just immigrated from, from Vietnam. It's really hard to write a family story from one person's point of view because however the children feel about the nail salon um, struggling is not the same as how the parents feel about the nail salon struggling. And so, yeah, I think it, it came from wanting to showcase uh, a full family story. And I think writing in five point of views allowed the reader to sympathize with all five of them rather than with just one character. I agree with that. I think I sympathized with all of them almost equally at different times. What about you yourself? Was there one of those five characters who you feel more connected to? I really love Debbie, and a lot of readers have told me they love Debbie. I think it's really nice to see a 60-something-year-old Asian woman to stand up against bullies and to be a little bit messy and be a little bit shady because she wants to protect her family and her business so much. And I, I really loved writing her, and I'm really glad I gave her her own perspective. Mm -hmm. This story takes place in 2016 in a real Toronto West End neighborhood. It's called The Junction. I know it quite well. It is gentrifying quickly, both in your book and in real life. Why did you decide to make gentrification an important theme in your book? So in the book, the trans are struggling to keep their business alive because uh, a chain nail salon has moved in down the street. They're taking all their customers. Uh, there's not as many customers coming into their salon. And so... I wanted to spend the majority of the book where the trans blame that chain nail salon for all the troubles that they're facing. But if you really see the bigger picture, it really isn't that chain nail salon that is the problem. It is the changes that are happening to the neighborhood, the increase in rent, the skyscrapers moving in, 
um, the zoning bylaws that allow for big businesses to move in and for you know, 16-story towers to move in down the neighborhood and jack up the rent and displace a lot of the, you know, low- to middle-income families. But how do you fight that? The Mm -hmm. trans, they can't fight that. So it's easier for them to point the blame at Take 10, the chain nail salon. And so, yeah, I I wanted to showcase a more insidious problem, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit untouchable for the trans. But I think it's something that a lot of small business owners in Toronto and any city in Canada is struggling with. Um, You see a lot of mom and pop shop open up to a lot of excitement, and then they slowly fizzle out and quietly close down, and then you never hear of them again. And that's just like a story that we're so used to and familiar with, unfortunately. Sure. Another story that, you know, many of us are are, are used to, especially when we come from, you know, immigrant uh, parents or grandparents, it's this intergenerational difference, and, and I, you see it with Debbie and her daughter, Jessica. Tell me about this. They react differently when strangers ask them, where are you from? Oh, yeah, that question is uh, means so many different things depending on who you are. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm, I'm 34. I'm second generation. I was born in Canada. When someone asks me, where are you from, it makes me cringe. You know, it makes me feel icky. I don't like hearing that question. Because it means that they they see my race and they see me as someone different. They don't see me as Canadian. That's what that question means to me. But for someone like Debbie or, or my parents who uh, were born in Vietnam, love their homeland and came to Canada, they love that question because they love to talk about where they came from, about their homeland, about the fruits and foods that they used to eat and the things they used to do there. So that question has a different connotation for them. So I liked infusing that. Um, intergenerational difference in my book with that one simple question. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And I think, I don't know, sometimes it's the tone, sometimes it's the person, but sometimes somebody goes, where are you from? And I, all I can think is, what are you doing with that information? What do you need to know that for? And other times I'm like, oh, my parents are from Pakistan. You know, it's a, it's a very strange loaded thing when that question comes to you, especially depending on who you are and who asks. You know, I, I really love this book and, and there's another connection I have with it. My uh, closest friend for a, a decade of my youth was a Vietnamese, Si Hai Tran. Shout out to Si Hai Tran. So I saw the Tran. They were pharmacists. And in Montreal and in Quebec, a lot of Vietnamese people are are pharmacists. That's There's there's a story there, too, that I don't have, but they went in that direction. But I, I loved all of that. Um, you know, where I used to have this Si Hai's grandmother would pat me on my head and ask Si Hai in Vietnamese, why is he bald? Where's his hair? <laughs> And then I'd be like, I don't know. I'm also wondering, where's my hair? Tell her I also don't know where my hair is. Vietnamese people are blunt like that. You Very have to, blunt. Just warning anyone out there who encounters a Vietnamese person. Be blunt, ready. Bluntness be ready is, for the bluntness. Yeah. Absolutely. And her solution, I was like, I don't know where my hair is. She would be like, eat more soup. <laughs> I was like, man, I've, I've eaten more soup than my body can handle. It didn't help my hair come back. That's another thing you should know about Vietnamese people. Their soup will not restore your hair, but it'll. it's quite delicious. Last thing I wanted to ask you. We started talking about your nails at the beginning because my eyes were immediately drawn to them because you said you worked in that world. What do people's nails say about them? Oof. I like to say that when nails say a lot more about someone than their hair, I would like to say that. Mm. Because when someone treats themselves to a manicure, it means they're treating themselves. When someone treats their hair, they're treating other people. Because when you look, you see your nails a lot more than you see your hair or any any other feature. And so I think someone's nails says a lot about their confidence levels, what kind of people they like to surround themselves with, what they like to do on their spare time. Um, there's a lot that can be read in someone's nails. But also, if they happen to have unadorned nails like mine, don't don't judge them for <laughs> it, okay? That has no meaning for who they are. No judgment here. Thank you so <laughs> much for this chat, Mai. Thank you, Ali. Mai Nguyen is the author of Sunshine Nails. She was in Toronto. Hi, my name is Ray Spoon, and I am a producer and a musician and an author, and I live between Toronto and Montreal. 
I'm reading the book The Future is Disabled by Leah Lakshmi Pjepshna Samarsinga. The Future is Disabled is a group of personal essays about disability justice, um, the care crisis, holding space for community members who've passed on in disability justice communities, organizing, and history and dreams for the future. I picked up The Future is Disabled when I was looking for writing by other like LGBTQ2S folks who were dealing with like sickness and disability. Um, yeah, just as I'm going through my own medical processes. I would recommend The Future is Disabled because most people at some point in their life will be dealing with a disability that happens. It can happen when you're very young, when you're older. I find it, it really valuable for myself to read about other folks who are disabled and imagined futures for how communities for disabled folks can be better. But I think it applies to everyone because it's something that people are scared to think about. But I think if we really care for folks who have disabilities in our society, we would be fearing it less. And when I got sick with cancer and had multiple things happen, a lot of the things that haven't changed in my body, I already knew people who had that change. And that made it a lot easier for me to not feel like I was a new person or my body had betrayed me or anything like that. The writing is very like conversational styled and it has a lot of sense of humor. With the fluidity of ability, I think it's a book that could benefit anyone who reads it. Dog-eared. 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 The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Sam Weeb, the author of Sunset and Jericho and the Wakeland series of detective novels, and a book I love to reread is Darker Than Amber by John D. MacDonald. It's part of the Travis McGee series of detective novels, and they're all amazing. But Darker Than Amber is special. It has one of the best first lines I've ever read. We were about to give up and call it a night when somebody dropped the girl off the bridge. That is up there with True Grit and The Haunting of Hill House in terms of just being a great opening that just grabs you. Um, I love this whole series. I love the fact that it's a mix of adventure and mystery and suspense, but also a real social conscience. And you really feel that, uh, that heart in the Travis McGee series. So Darker Than Amber, highly recommend it. Sunset in Jericho is also pretty great. Hi, I'm Lily Chu, the author of The Comeback. A book I absolutely love to reread is the collected short stories of Colette. The stories were written from the early to mid-1900s and cover friendship, love, and human nature. I picked it up from a bargain bin when I was 19 and taking the bus to Ottawa to see my then-boyfriend. The book has outlasted the boyfriend by about 25 years and is now split down the spine and held together with tape. The reason I love it so much is that as I've grown and changed, so too is my connection with Colette. When I was younger, I reread the love stories. Then the stories of motherhood attracted me and the women exhausted by their daily work and their lives. I've gone back to the romance these days and the years have given me a very different perspective on the characters and their motivations. It's also the first time I read a book that so firmly centered women and their experiences and emotions, both positive and negative. It was my gateway book to Alice Munro and so many other extraordinary authors. In a chaotic world, it's reassuring to know I can always pick up Colette, open to any page, and lose myself in her words for a few minutes. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, I'm Catherine Leroux, the author of The Future, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. Matea Roach is a great competitor. We saw it with their winning Jeopardy run and again last year when the book they championed, Ducks, by Kate Beaton, won Canada Reads. And as the host of Canada Reads, I had a front row seat and watched Matea's impressive debating skills in action. These days, Matea is hosting The Backbench, a political interview podcast, and I've heard rumors they may even be writing a book. Matea started reading at the age of three and has never stopped and they join me now from their home in Toronto to talk about three memoirs that they recommend. Hi, Matea. Great to talk to you again. Hey, Ali. Good to talk to you under somewhat less stressful circumstances than last time. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, okay, so first, a, a quick catch-up on life, a political podcast and a possible book. Please tell me more about both of those. Yeah, for sure. So the podcast I host is called The Backbench. Uh, it runs on the Candleland Network, so an independent media company. Uh, and essentially what we try and do on that show is make politics more accessible for listeners that maybe feel like traditional media doesn't serve them or doesn't explain politics in a way that resonates with them. So especially, you know, younger listeners, new Canadians, that sort of thing. In terms of a book, yeah, uh, <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of things I could say, and it's a question of what book do I want to write right now? Is it the right time? Mm. I think at some point I'll do something. I have a literary agent that I'm sure would love to hear more about it. Uh, <laughs> so I think first I'll talk to my agent about yes. that, and then maybe the listeners of uh, of the next chapter. I think that's fair. It starts mom, literary agent, and then the general public. I think that's the order that we that's reveal That's the these order of operations. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um you are here to talk about three memoirs. And is that a genre that you seek out in particular? I read a lot of memoirs. And I think, you know, a lot of the reason why people who love reading love to read is not just, you know, you get a window into other perspectives, but also hopefully you are reading things that are giving you a bit of a new way of looking at your own life. When you read a memoir that resonates with you, that you see, oh, this feels like something that happened to me, or this feels like the way that I think about things, or I've never thought about it that way, but I see how this applies to my own life. It feels very powerful to me in a way that fiction can also be, but often doesn't quite as much just for me as a reader. Mm. And so I've found like, especially, you know, as I've moved into now the second half of my 20s and my perspective on a lot of things, family, grief, all, you know, work and like what constitutes a career. My perspective on all of these things has changed so much. Sometimes I find myself going back to books that I maybe read for the first time when I was like 18, 20 and finding that I get like a whole new uh, a depth out of some of the memoirs I initially read at that age. So that's great. Let's talk about this. What is the first book that you've brought for uh, for some discussion today? Yeah, so the first book I brought is Where I Was From by Joan Didion. It's from 2003. Okay, yeah, and Joan Didion uh, passed away in 2021, considered a master of the essay, and she's well known for writing about, among other things, California. And she Tell us, what is her relationship to the state? Yeah, so Joan Didion, essentially, one key thing to know about her is not only did she live most of her life in California, but she was a fifth-generation Californian, which... For somebody of her age, she was born in the 30s. The 30s was a time where a lot of people were migrating to California from the Dust Bowl. And so for her family to have already been so rooted there was quite unusual for like a, a settler family, essentially. Or it was becoming quite unusual. You can tell she's really rooted in a sense of place. The knowledge of the history and sort of how the state works in terms of even governance, how like agriculture works seems to be something that shows up in a lot of her works. It's very important to her to understand these things. And you can tell that in her writing when she does not live in California, because she eventually did move out to New York, uh, she still feels very connected to that sense of place, that sense of heritage. It's something that was clearly instilled in her from a very young age and that she held very dear, I think, right till the end of her life. It's interesting. California is such a storied place. It looms large in your imagination, even if you've never been, right? Just from films and, and hearing about the weather and geography. And what are your impressions of California after reading uh, Joan Didion's take uh, in this book, Where I Was From. 
I mean, it's certainly, yeah, it looms large in the cultural imagination. I think just because it's a center of film and TV production, we see so much more of it than we see of a lot of other parts of the United States. Um, and for me, I think I have completely a new appreciation of Didion's writing about California since I've spent a fair amount of time out there over the past two years. I think for me, what I've come to appreciate is that grounding in in history and also politics that Didion's writing has. And if you compare where I was from, you know, being written in 2003, so fairly long into her career with some of her earlier writing in, say, the White Album or Slouching Towards Bethlehem, you know, her earlier essay collections from the late 60s and into the 70s. I think you see this shift where those earlier works had a bit more of a, a romantic image of California, um, sort of taking certain myths about self-reliance of Californians. Like there's this big thing of, you know, California was settled by these intrepid people who went across the mountains and, you know, they had nothing and they were able to sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they don't take any, it's like this sort of very traditional Republican almost way of thinking about things. Hmm. In where I was from, I think what we see is this sort of shift, like she's almost doing a process of like myth busting in her later years, realizing just the tension between that vision of California that she was brought up with and that her parents instilled in her and the fact that actually the economic development of California was very reliant on things like federal government subsidies of the railroads, of major agriculture. She talks about the military industrial complex and how many jobs uh, existed for a long time in California as a result of that. You know, that's also people that were employed as a direct result of government contracts. And so it's, you know, it's a memoir about her and her family. She talks about even like her you know, fifth great grandparents, she goes back that far. Hmm. But it's also a social history very much, this book. All right. Well, tell us what your next book is on this uh, list of recommendations. Yeah. So my next book is Best Young Woman Job Book by Emma Healy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A young woman and her jobs. What is Emma Healy's story? So Emma Healy's story is she grew up in Toronto. She doesn't say specifically in this book where she went to high school, but based on the description of the high school, my I believe she went to a high school that many of my best friends actually also attended. Um, but she, you know, she goes to high school. She wants to become a writer. She goes to Montreal for the creative writing program, at, I believe at Concordia, and then kind of graduates into this milieu where there, it's not really clear what you're supposed to do with that sort of an education and a background. You know, you want to write, you want to perhaps publish poetry. She has published some works of poetry in the past. You want to maybe work as an editor or something, but the job opportunities are just often not there. They're poorly paid. And so what this book describes basically is the series of jobs that she had post-graduation and some that she had while she was in school you know, working in captioning, essentially, where she'd go to this office uh, and work the night shift, writing subtitles uh, and descriptions of videos that would then like go out to streaming services or things like that. Um, you know, working at an adult entertainment, like I think it's kind of implied to be like MindGeek, like the Pornhub office in Montreal hmm. uh, shortly after graduation and just trying to, you know, make a writing career work alongside all of this and feeling like, what is the point of me working so hard if I'm maybe not going to be able to do any of the things that I want to do? Mm -hmm. So it's it's definitely something that resonates with me and a lot of the people that I know, like most of my close friends, I would say are in the like 24 to 27 is sort of the main age range of people that I'm close with. Most of us are humanities or social science people. There's not a lot of uh, like, <laughs> there's like no engineers in my circle. Mm. And so this sort of journey is something that I think a lot of the people that I surround myself with are on. So you mentioned she wants to be a writer and I guess she succeeded because here we are talking about her book. But then the question is, how did all those, uh, those various jobs shape her uh, as a writer and as a person? She talks about sort of the ways that you have to restrict or tailor your writing for captions, um, just in terms of like the length of the sentence that you can use or having to describe sounds, right? That's like one of the hardest jobs that somebody uh, working as a captioner would have is if you're transcribing dialogue, it's very clear most of the time what's being said. But how do you describe music, right? Like I often will watch things with subtitles. Um, just to make sure I'm not missing anything or whatever. And I'm always very interested in like the adjectives that get used to describe musical cues that are supposed to provoke a certain kind of mood, right? Mm. Because for people that are hard of hearing watching these things, like they don't have the capacity to kind of compare, okay, is this caption really matching like the music that I'm hearing? It's they're purely relying on that. 
So I think that that would shape your writing in the sense that you might get better at writing certain kinds of things, also might be somewhat impacted by needing to keep things very brief. Um, the one thing that I found interesting about this memoir, and like I recommended this book to a friend and she had this comment when she finished it, she was like, it feels almost like unfinished in a way. And I think that's a feature and not a bug. There's this sense that when a memoir, you know, is published, we expect our stories to, in some ways to have kind of like a neat ending um, in the sense of people talk about this with like depression memoirs a lot that you write about experiencing some sort of dark period in your life. And at the end, you're supposed to have resolved it when that's often not how things like, you know, whether it's mental illness, whether it's like grief, whether it's uh, finding your career, that's not how things work, right? There's sort of this open question of, yes, obviously she's written this book and that in some way means she succeeded. Well, a lot of people write a book and they still have to do other kinds of jobs because whatever sure. money they make off of that book is not enough to sustain themselves. A lot of the sorts of writerly jobs that in the past people might have done you know, Didion used to work on like screenplays. She was a script doctor. Well, that kind of work is harder to come by than it used to be. The sorts of pay that people get for things like writing profiles is not what it used to be, right? So I think there's this real sense of like, even though I'm working on this book and the sort of endpoint is, well, now the book is finished, I've completed it, you're reading it now. There's a sense of I might have to go back to that sort of more precarious life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the final book on your list. So the final book that I brought is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Right. Michelle Zahner, uh, some people might know, also a front woman for a, a, an indie rock band called, uh, or indie pop band called Japanese Breakfast, and a writer. Were you familiar with her music before you read the book? Oh, yeah. Um, I've been listening to Japanese Breakfast since their first album came out in 2016, yeah. Um, so I was familiar with the music well prior to the book coming out. And I waited to read this book, actually. You know, I, I was very excited to read about it when it came out. And then for whatever reason, I just never made it a priority. And then this summer after my dad passed away, I was doing, it's funny, there seems to be like two schools of thought of what you should do if you're grieving. Some people are like, you should really embrace the grief and like read a bunch of stuff about it uh, and really just kind of get in the zone and work out all your feelings. Right. And then some people are like, no, it's going to be too in much. The other uh, yeah. yeah, like... I'm very glad I waited to read it. What is, uh, so it's called Crying in the H Mart. What is the H Mart and how does it re relate to the memoir? Yeah, so H Mart is an Asian grocery store, basically chain. And so what's very common is for people that are in Asian diaspora communities. So in Michelle Zahner's case, uh, her mom was Korean. And so that's her connection there. But, you know, also Chinese, Japanese, like Vietnamese, whatever, uh, they'll go to H Mart to buy products that they may not be able to find in their local conventional supermarket. And so for many people, it's a connection to a culture, to a community that they may not be able to access other places. In Michelle's honors case, she's biracial. Her dad is white. Her mom was Korean. After the loss of her mom, her mom died of cancer. I think Michelle was like 25, um, so similar age to me. She finds herself really trying to reconnect or stay connected, I guess, uh, with her mom and that side of her family through food. And so she's crying in H Mart because she's thinking about, you know, that grief and that processing and kind of noticing that a lot of people who she encounters there, like in the food court, going up and down the aisles, likely are also trying to recapture something that they feel that they've lost. Mm. How does food connect Michelle and her her mother in this book? she specifies a lot of like traditions in Korean culture around food that there's, for instance, like a particular seaweed soup that you eat on your birthday. That's also very connected with womanhood. That's like, you're also supposed to drink it during pregnancy. The idea being, you know, you eat that on your birthday because it's recognizing the contribution of your mom and in making you be here on this earth, essentially. Um, you know, there's a lot that has to do with specific storage units essentially that people will have for fermenting kimchi and she talks about after her mom passes uh you know kind of divvying up where certain things are going to go um michelle like goes and finds her mom's like kimchi fridge hmm. and finds that actually there were all of these old family photos there so in a very literal way the place where this traditional food was kept was also keeping all sorts of other history it sounds like a great book uh, exactly very nice to chat with you thank you for all this matea it's been great catching up. It was, uh, you know, hopefully <laughs> hopefully it won't be such a long time between future catch-ups. Uh, hopefully not. 
Mateo Roach is a Jeopardy and Canada Reads winner. They are now the host of the Backbench podcast, and the books they recommended today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. Casey Platt grew up in Manitoba and Oregon in a Mennonite family. She lived for a time in Windsor, Toronto, and now lives in New York. These days, Casey is known for her nuanced and award-winning fiction, featuring stories of trans women and their lives. And she's an editor and publisher. So with all those intersecting identities, what community does she claim, or does one or more claim her? Casey has thought about this complicated concept of community for a long time. And in her book, On Community, she wrestles with all the contradictions and strengths and weaknesses of these bonds we form with other people. Here is Casey in conversation with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. I know you grew up in a small town um, in the Canadian prairies in the region of southern Manitoba. And you knew Born everyone. in Manitoba, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> woo, woo. <laughs> you knew everyone in the block on the duplex where you lived. Maybe take us back there. What does that community look like, particularly at that time when you grew up? So this was the 90s, and, you know, this was a small, largely, though not wholly, conservative Mennonite town. And it is true, I grew up there for my uh, during my childhood, but when I was 11, we moved to the Pacific Northwest and to a larger city that was um, about 150,000 people and more suburban in character. And so a lot of my life has been thinking about that small town experience where all my family is from and this more secular, larger, suburban experience of my childhood. They were different in a lot of ways, but it's also complicated. Mm. So people from that region, Steinbach region of Manitoba, they're overwhelmingly comprised of people that look like your family, Mennonites from like low German-speaking communities who arrived from Eastern Europe, and this is like the 1870s to the 1920s. Who, who were these people? Who are these people, uh, generally speaking? Right. They're Russian Mennonites um, from uh, what's now Ukraine, what was then South Russia, almost completely white, speaking low German. And I, I'm not from the Steinbach area, actually. My mother's family is, but the winkler Morden area is different. And that's a funny thing I go into in the book, because these two regions, to an outsider, would look almost exactly the same. Within those two regions, though, there's even uh, a small, um, I'm going to mess up the low German pronunciation, but Yunt side and Dat side, which means like either this side or that side of the Red River, which splits these two regions. And part of my curiosities about community is how on every level communities are fractured down into smaller and smaller levels. Like, for example, I'm also a transgender woman. And so the trans community, just even saying that term, you know, we're not a huge part of the population. But within trans communities, there is an enormous, an enormous level of fracturing and subdivides within those communities going down across so, so many levels. Communities are, I think, always a little more complex and have these subdivisions than we usually give credit for, even communities that might seem very small and very cohesive to an outsider. You are a trans woman, Casey, and you're often asked about community, specifically That's correct. the community among trans people. You, in the book, you make an attempt to define the quote-unquote transgender community. What does that community mean to you in 2023? What it means to me is that there are so many communities within our communities. You know, we have this term like the trans community, but let's say, for example, you're talking about American life, and you use the phrase the Idaho community. That phrase doesn't make any sense, right? We'd be like, well, that, what does that mean? It's a whole state. It's big. To me, it's similar with the trans community, because trans people are have so many different complexities within all of us. And you talk to any trans person who knows a lot of trans people, and the idea of some holistic, cohesive trans community where all of us get together and we're all friends and we all sort of think similar things, that's nonsensical. I mean, I think, you know, we'd all say like, no, of course, it's not that way at all. And I think that's not unique to us. I think that's just how communities work. Right. 
And then there's the social media aspect of it all. I think it enables a sense of community, and and that's kind of shifted over the years as the technology has evolved. You mentioned Live Journal, and that, and that took me back because I had a live, live journal as well. I, I think I went <laughs> you back. You too? Oh, <laughs> awesome. Amazing, amazing. Uh-huh. I actually went back and looked at it. It's still up there, and it's like I actually revealed all this details on this website. So, but oh, what, yeah, amazing, amazing. So Live Journal was like a, a online blogging community, but they didn't have an algorithm, so it was totally different. It was very organic in terms of searching and whatnot. What, what did Live Journal mean to you? All my friends were on it, and I expressed a lot of my thoughts on it. Um, and this was, you know, I was in high school and early university, and this was about two decades ago, and we had a little community on there. For sure. And lots of drama and lots of groupthink and lots of infighting. You know, I think sometimes when I, I know that the hyper speed of social media nowadays makes things different. It really, really does, for sure. I also think there are elements that, you know, when I, when I think of social media drama, I think, well, sort of old as time, isn't it? Mm. Casey, you've moved a lot um, from like Manitoba to <laughs> Ontario, um, New York. You're now in your late 30s. What what does community look like for you, particularly when you have to set down new routes uh, all the time over and over again? Um, I think a lot about how I have been part of different, lots of different communities and still am parts of different communities. And I think lots of, it, of us are, even if it seems like to an outsider we belong largely to one community or with it we are within one community so your background is mennonite um so the mennonite community like many communities is all, is often stereotyped and misunderstood you describe in the book that you're often stuck on how non-mennonites are can be fascinated with the community in a way that disquiets you why is that there's a presumption of innocence of how you think other people must be living And Mennonites are an interesting case because, you know, most Mennonites, if you're a straight white Mennonite, which many Mennonites in Canada and the U.S. are, though not all, um, I mean, you know, it's not a marginalized population the way that, say, trans people are. So it's an interesting thing for me to examine, sort of stripped of these other um, loaded, stakes-ridden political situations to consider how a community can be stereotyped or exoticized or just all these preconceptions are brought to bear on it in ways that are weird, in ways that have made me examine my own preconceptions. Yeah. And in fact, you refer to that um, famous um, David Foster Wallace speech where the anecdote is one where the fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And one fish turns to the other and says, what the, what the hell is water? And, and he, uses that story, yeah. <laughs> he uses that story to kind of say, like, fish in the ocean, we're not aware of what surrounds us. Um, so context is important. Like, like, w- w- why do you think that's so in terms of defining community? I'm so intrigued by how there are parts of community that can be around us that we don't notice, that we don't imagine. One thing I think we can split community into is there's these, these feelings of community, these feelings of belonging. Do you feel like you belong to certain communities or do you not? And then there are the objective facts like you cannot belong to a community and your community can still take care of you and in ways that you just don't realize. Likewise, I feel like I sometimes you can feel like you belong to a community, but if you examine the objective facts of it, maybe maybe not as much. And the book actually argues, Casey, that we all need community. And, and when I thought about that, I initially chafed, chafed at the idea, being an introvert myself, it's like, give me a pile of books in the cave and I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but then it made me think about found family and, and how my sense of community has evolved over, over time. How are you yeah. thinking about belonging and finding our people? It makes me think that we all have our own ways of interacting with this stuff. And totally the question of like, what does it mean for introverts or people who don't really, might not feel like that's a big part of their lives, feel about this book. I was talking with an old family friend about this book this summer who lives in a small town and said, you know, you talk about community. I don't know if I feel really part of mine or that bothers me or if I want to be. And then he said to me, but then again, I think if I were to go live in a big city, would I want that? No, I probably wouldn't. And so 
I think that regardless of how much we want to be involved within our communities or how much we feel like a part of one, we still interact with this regardless. And maybe, and I mean, like, I don't know you, so sorry if I'm overreaching, obviously, but I feel like all of us, including the most introverted among us, have these things that look like community, have things like found family that are in our lives to some degree, even if we don't always recognize it or not. Part of my journey in writing this book was realizing that there are communities I'm part of that are real that maybe I don't really think about day to day. You've dedicated this book, Casey, to your grandfather. Rest in peace. What what did community mean for him? My grandfather, Jerry Dirksen, rest in peace. He passed away last October. He was so a such a, such a part of his communities. Spent most of his life in Blumenort, Manitoba. And he was a school teacher, he was a principal, he was a pastor. He had a very, very public life. The interesting thing though, I mostly knew him during my childhood when he had withdrawn from public life for various reasons. So I knew him as a largely very solitary person, but I learned as the years went on that that had not been what the bulk of his life looked like. So it was on my mind, too, how we go in and out of communities during the course of our lives and how that can also still shape us and that can be so, so, so important. I didn't know him as this public face of his communities like he had been for much of his life before he came around. But during, after he passed, including just a couple weeks ago, I've talked to so many people whose lives he touched through his communities. I find that, I found that very powerful. Casey, thanks so much for this conversation. Ryan, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Casey Plett about her book on community. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. My thanks this week to Sarah Cooper, Emily Carvacio, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, two mystery and crime fiction lovers will be here with their recommendations for holiday reading. And I'll talk with the mystery writer Asma Zahanet Khan about Blood Betrayal, the latest installment in her Detective Inaya Rahman series. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to The Next Chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.